Welcome. You're listening to Sanseat. Where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine. To become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Aaron O'Dowd. On today's program, Aaron is talking with Jeffrey J. Kripal, the J. Newton Razor Professor of Philosophy and Religious Thought and former chair of the Department of Religious Studies at Rice University in Houston, Texas. His work includes the study of comparative erotics and ethics in mystical literature, American countercultural translations of Asian religions, and the history of Western esotericism from Gnosticism to New Age religions. His books include 1995's Kali's Child, The Mystical and Erotic in the Life and Teachings of Ramakrishna. The book won the American Academy of Religions History of Religions Prize for the best first book of 1995. His other writings include Esalen, America and the Religion of No Religion, Authors of the Impossible, Roads of Excess, The Serpent's Gift, Mutants and Mystics, and Supernatural. And now here's today's interview with Jeffrey J. Kripal. Hello and welcome, Jeffrey. How are you doing today? I'm well, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. Can you tell us about how you got into religion and spirituality? Well, that's a long story. I mean, the, the short story is, is that I started out in a Catholic seminary where I was introduced to philosophy and theology and psychoanalysis and study of world religions. All of that I found incredibly provocative and productive, and so I decided to, when I graduated from the seminary, not to go on for a religious vocation, but to go on for an intellectual vocation. And so I went to graduate school and did a PhD in something called the History of Religions at the University of Chicago, which was a program founded by Mircea Eliade in the, in the early 60s. So that, that's really how I got into it, is through basically monks introducing me to all sorts of new ideas and ways of thinking about religion that I found really fascinating. And did you grow up with a religious background, or was it just... Yeah, I grew, I grew up in a farming community in the Midwest here in the States, and it was a German uh, small town in Nebraska, actually, and about a third of the town was uh, Lutheran, and about a third of the town was Catholic. And, the rest of the town was generally other Protestant denominations. Uh, I was in a Catholic family, so I grew up in a kind of general kind of Catholic culture, not an unusual or particularly pious one, for sure, just was sort of the air you breathed and the, the water you swam in. Um, so that, you know, that was my, my family background. I see. And through history of religion, did you un- discover and anything interesting through that? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, my original interests all involved the relationship between human sexuality and certain kinds of ecstatic religious experiences that that are often framed in erotic terms. And I wanted to understand the relationship between sexuality and erotic mystical experiences. And, you know, I essentially did that for 10 or 15 years there. So my my early questions were all around gender and sexuality. And and then after that, I, I sort of answered those questions for myself. And 
little after the turn of the millennium, I started to study essentially new religious movements in the U.S., particularly out in California, and that took me into a an entirely new direction. And the the questions that you had about sexuality and religion kind of make you worry, or was it just like, oh, okay? No, the original questions around sexuality they, they didn't make me worry, but I mean they were pro extremely provocative. I mean, I was in the seminary in the early 1980s, and it was a very psychological environment in which we were all sort of forced, really, to add, ask the question of why we were interested in a life of celibacy. I mean, that's a very strange decision to make as a typical young male in American culture. So, uh, you know, we were all forced to ask the tough questions about ourselves and about why we thought we were called to this particular lifestyle. You know, so I had to think about those things very intensely. You know, that's that's really what put me on the path, as it were. But I wasn't. It wasn't that I was worried. It was that I was struggling with, of course, my own sexuality and my own religious vocation, and trying to make sense of that as well. What made you not decide to become a monk? Well, that's okay, again very complicated. But the simple story is that when I hit puberty, I became deeply anorexic. This was in the 1970s, and we didn't even have a word like anorexia. Karen Carpenter died in 1983, and that was really the first time the word anorexia, I think, was bounced around in at least American culture. Uh, so in the 70s, uh, being anorexic was very odd, and it was mostly, of course, among females, and I was a male, and, and so it was very confusing. It also basically destroyed my athletic careers, and kind of turned me into a freak among my high school peers. And so when I entered the seminary, I continued to be anorexic. In my own mind, I was fasting. Uh, I was trying to be holy. I wasn't trying to be anorexic. But in fact, it was a very obsessive kind of behavior. And the monks uh, recognized that and put me into psychoanalysis with a monk who happened to be a Freudian analyst. And that cured me of the anorexia and made me face up to kind of the psychosexual reasons that I wasn't eating, which essentially involved trying to repress my sexuality by not eating, by, by suppressing the body, as it were. That was an extremely powerful experience for me. It showed me that somebody's religious behavior or religious practices, in this case my own, could be driven by forces of which you know, the person could be completely unaware. And so it was my first real entrance into looking at religious experience and expression in critical or suspicious ways. And it, you know, it started with me. I, I wasn't looking at anyone else. I was looking at myself. So that was a very powerful experience. And because I, you know, I hadn't basically eaten for six or seven years or eaten enough, I was, uh, I was really hungry. I was really, really happy that I wasn't starving to death anymore. So it was, it was a kind of a miracle cure in some ways. And um, it really changed how I thought about myself and about sexuality and about religion and about the unconscious and all sorts of things. And at the turn of the millennium, you went to explore different religions. Can you explain about that to us? Yeah. Uh, what, what happened essentially was 1998, a man by the name of Michael Murphy uh, was reading my first book, which was called Kali's Child, which was on the mystical and the erotic in the life and teachings of um, this Hindu saint named Ramakrishna. And Mike uh, 
was very excited about the book and when he finished it in a uh, restaurant in San Rafael, he immediately picked up his cell phone and tried to call me and, and in fact found me uh, out in Pennsylvania on the other side of the country and um, struck up a conversation. Mike was one of the co-founders of the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, which played a major role in the introduction of Asian religions into America in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, and so Mike started to invite me out to Esalen for various kinds of symposia or conferences. And I started to go out there and I realized somewhere around 2000 or 2001 or something that um, Esalen itself would make a wonderful topic for a book and a book on how Asian religions came to America or, or became so prominent. And so that's how I began working on those materials and uh, interviewing those particular individuals. And eventually that book came out in 07 and it's called Esalen, America and the Religion of No Religion. What did you find through that exploration? One of the things I found was that Esalen and what we call the Human Potential Movement really can be traced back to two figures. One um, is a, an Indian guru or spiritual teacher named Sri Aurobindo, who uh, lived in uh, an ashram in Pondicherry, India for most of his adult life, who wrote about evolution and Indian philosophy. And the other was a professor of comparative religion at Stanford University named Frederick Spiegelberg, who taught both Michael Murphy and the other co-founder of Esalen, Richard Price, taught them comparative religion in the 1950s. I found that this really influential movement in California was really a, a kind of fusion of, of the professional comparative study religion and this particular Indian spiritual writer. I also uh, discovered that it was populated largely by intellectuals in the beginning, people like Aldous Huxley, and Abraham Maslow, and Ida Rolf. Uh, and that, you know, then it changes as the countercultural erupts in the 60s and changes again in the 70s. And by the 1980s, it starts to morph into what we call the New Age movement. So I was really trying to trace this history. And today, that all seems rather distant, but you can still feel echoes of it in individuals who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. It's, it's very much the same kind of orientation, even if it's forgotten. It's, it's various pasts. After Esalen, what was your, your next book? Um, so when I was interviewing people for the Esalen book, I heard lots of stories of really remarkable things, various psychical experiences, UFO encounters, paranormal events. And I was really struck by these because I, I knew the people who were telling me that I, I knew they weren't lying. And I knew I didn't have any way of understanding what they were telling me. So I set out to try to write a kind of intellectual history of the paranormal to make sense for myself why we no longer had any tools to think about these things. And uh, that book uh, came out in 010. It's called Authors of the Impossible. And it's essentially a history of the paranormal from about 1870 or so to, to today. Through the paranormal, do you believe in it? And is it in a day-to-day -day interaction with you? Well, it depends on what you mean by believe. I, <laughs> I don't believe in the forms it takes. I mean, it takes lots of forms from 
angels and demons to you know extraterrestrials i don't believe in the visionary or symbolic forms through which it expresses itself but i am positive that these things actually happen in other words people have these experiences i have absolutely no doubt about that what they mean is entirely another question and that's where i think belief is not helpful the question of belief obscures i think more than it reveals define the word impossible do you think that spiritually and religious we live in a world of i mean a lot of things by that in the book you know an author of the impossible for me is somebody who writes or speaks about events that are supposed to be impossible but in fact are not and so he or she authorizes the impossible and makes it in fact possible by writing about it and reconceptualizing it within a new framework. I think a lot of the things we think are impossible are in fact not impossible at all. They're just possible in the frameworks that we assume to be true. But those frameworks are deeply relative and will change with time. So the book really isn't about the impossible, it's really about the possible and how the impossible becomes possible. After that book, was Mutant Mystic next, or was there another book? Well, I was really writing both books at the same time. But the next book is called Mutants and Mystics, and it's a study of how writers and artists who create popular culture, so things like movies and uh, comic books and uh, graphic novels, how they often have paranormal experiences, and instead of trying to prove it or believe in it, they turn these experiences into art. They create a comic book or they they make a movie or whatever it is they do. And so the that book was very much about the creative process and how anomalous uh, psychical experiences are often the trigger or the catalyst for the creation of popular culture. Hence the title Mutant. And, and mystics. In observing that creative flow, did you witness it yourself? Well, you know, in some ways you're always writing about yourself. At the end of the day, I, I am a writer and that's what I enjoy doing probably more than anything. And when you're really writing, when you're really in the flow, as we say, it really does have a kind of magical quality and it kind of happens on its own or it seems to happen on its own. And then very strange things often happen around writing or around reading. You know, things just kind of fall into your lap or you, someone writes a, an email at the right exact time or you meet a person at the right exact time. So there's a kind of magical, almost conjuring quality about writing in an intense and, and creative way that, that I've certainly noticed in my own life, but I think is often much more extreme in, in the lives of other writers. Do you think it's because of imagination? Well, I think the imagination is involved, but but I, by that I don't mean that it's imaginary. I think the imagination is in fact a real thing and it has capacities or abilities that we, we don't recognize in our materialistic culture. I, I think there is a kind of, again, magical quality to the human imagination and it can materialize or, or make real what it imagines. Not always, of course, but again, in these very unusual, very special moments that, that people report. Why the mutant and mystic as a title? Did it kind of sink you or was it just something you observed? No, 
That book is organized around various themes that you see in these emergent or developing mythologies. And one of the major themes that you see in popular culture in the paranormal is the idea of evolution as a kind of mystical force that is pushing human nature into some other kind of post-human or transhuman uh, future. And so the figure of the mutant is actually a very, very common motif. Uh, it wasn't invented in the 1960s by Marvel Comics. It, it in fact goes all the way back to the 1860s, right, right after Darwin wrote The Origin of Species. So I was really, I was really interested in that motif. And the mystics, you know, I've been studying the mystics for three decades now, so they were always there as well. So I just put the two together in a kind of alliterative phrase, and that's how that title came about. In studying the mystics, is there a particular mystic that pops out to you? My all-time favorite is, is Meister Eckhart, who was a German professor of theology in the mid medieval church, um, 12th century. So he's probably my favorite, but I also very fond of Ramakrishna in the 19th century Calcutta. Uh, and, and probably William Blake. William Blake's also a biggie for me, the great British romantic poet and, and, and painter. Fantastic. What makes them your favorite? Well, different things. You know, if you, I don't know if you've read any Meister Eckhart's sermons, but he, he composed these wonderful sermons and they, they take basic Christian doctrines and they use them as sort of prisms to talk about mystical experiences, direct encounters with the divine. And they're very sophisticated and they can be read today in ways that I think people, even modern people would find very meaningful. You know, he says things like, the eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. So there's this deeply paradoxical quality to his sermons. With Ramakrishna, you know, he, you're in a different world, of course. You're in 19th century Calcutta, and he inhabited very much a tantric worldview in which the physical world was itself divine or an expression of divinity. And Ramakrishna was very funny and told a lot of stories and parables and, and a very, very uh, charming, uh, profound uh, teacher. And then with Blake, it's, you know, it's, it's his art and his poetry and the way those two things come together in such striking ways. Also very provocative. So after Mutants and Mystic, where did you, where writing go after that? After Mutants and Mystics, I, I turned to a textbook, actually. I, I, I decided or was asked to write a textbook, which came out in 2014. It's called Comparing Religions Coming to Terms. It's really a textbook on how to compare, uh, particularly how to compare religions. It's aimed at the general, at the general reader, but also, of course, at the student in the classroom. But a lot of people find it very helpful, actually, outside the classroom. It's a kind of how-to toolbox on how to think about and talk about religion. And with that, with religion being so dogma, is it kind of a first aid kit to kind of go through where you're going through religion? When one compares religions, of course, a lot of the, the dogma and the literalism falls away because you're comparing different religions. You're putting different religions on the same even, fair, flat table, and you're seeing what's similar and what's different. And once you do that, of course, 
you can see that all religions are uh, expressions of different human cultures at different times. And that tends to soften or relativize uh, any and all of their dogmatic statements. So that's really how the textbook works. It kind of guides the reader through this softening of dogma and this loosening of cultural boundaries and helps them arrive at a place where they can let much more of the world and much more of their fellow humanity in. Do you have your own religion or is it through spirit? You know, I very much identify with the religion of no religion that I write about in the Esalen book. And that's not secularism or, or some kind of exclusive humanism. It's, it's again, very close to what Meister Eckhart was teaching. It's an appreciation or it's an, it's an affirmation there's something deeply spiritual and, and even divine in the human being. That inner human divinity expresses itself in various ways that then become religions. But none of those religions are, are absolutely true. They're, they're, they're art forms, essentially, of this inner artist or this, this inner painter. It's, it's a paradoxical position that, that I'm in. I, I want to affirm all of these religions, but at the same time, I'm denying each and every one of them. Wow, fantastic. And after that book, did you write another book or you kind of explored? Uh, I just came out with the book here, and I think maybe that's why we first started talking. Um, it, it's called The Supernatural, three words, The Supernatural. And I co-wrote it with Whitley Strieber, the science fiction writer who uh, wrote a book called Communion back in 1987 uh, about his own abduction experience. So Whitley talks about his abduction or his encounters with what he calls simply the visitors. And then I comment on his experiences as a, you know, as a scholar of religion. That must have been a very interesting piece of work to piece two different angles together. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun, actually. It just came out, actually. It came out about six weeks ago. The visitors, do you think that's the right word to call UFOs or paranormal activity? That's Whitley's language. You know, he's trying to avoid the language of the alien or the extraterrestrial. He doesn't know what they are or who they are or whether they're aspects of himself and the human mind. I mean, he leaves all of those questions open. And that's why he calls them the visitors to sort of, it's a neutral term for him. It, it leaves the question open. It doesn't land on any clear answer because he doesn't know. So that's why, that's, that's why he calls them that. In reading the book yourself, did it kind of crop up those questions as well? Yeah, I mean... That's what the book is all about, is, is uh, Willie and I having this conversation and trying to leave the question open and to really expand that conversation and take it into new territory that's more careful and nuanced. In your own work, do you meditate or do you write? What is your, your being oh, in that, that well, zone? I try to meditate, Aaron, but I'm a very bad meditator. Every time I try to meditate, I end up having a series of thoughts about what to write. And so then I sit down and crack open the laptop and pretty soon I'm writing. So I, I'm very much a writer, but I'm not a very good meditator, but, but I try. I, I really try. In writing either a book or a day-to-day, -day, do you have your own sequence to get into the flow? 
Yeah, I mean, I do. I, you know, I'm always writing something, and uh, I, I work in the mornings, early in the morning. So I get up early and make some strong coffee and sit down in my study and uh, either read something to to think about writing something or or just write. I try to do it for two to three hours every every morning before I, I my day starts. So for me, it's all about consistency. It's a it's a long distance run. It's not a it's not a sprint. So you've written various different books on spirituality and religion, but is there any other books that you read in that area outside of your own? Oh, of course, oh, of course. I'm constantly reading. I mean, that's that's how I write. I mean, I don't just think about my own thoughts. I think about other people's thoughts, and I read their work, and then. A lot of what I write is commenting on what I'm reading. So, so, yeah, I read, I try to read very widely. And is it just the religion and spirituality or do you kind of dip into other areas as well? Well, mostly religion and spirituality. I, I'm a terrible, a terrible reader of novels. I don't read enough fiction. I, you know, I read newspapers, of course, to keep up on the news, but mostly I read in my own areas, which is essentially the history of religion and contemporary spirituality. Is it true that Mutants and Mystics became a movie? No, it's not true. Um, it was read on the set of a superhero movie, uh, and then it was popular with a particular uh, screenwriter, but it, it wasn't made into a movie. Is there anything you would like to, to change in world religion today if you had the choice to, if you had the option to? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's why I like the religion of no religion. I guess if I had to sum it all up, I would say this. I would say if I had some magical wand or some ability, um, I would want people to understand that they're human beings first and that their religious identities and religious egos are built upon that humanity through language and social practices and that all of those religious identities and egos are relative and, and constructed and that their humanity is much deeper so i wish we could be human beings first and religious people second or third as opposed to religious people first and, and human beings second or third. That would be my hope. If God existed as a human, what do you think he would look like? <laughs> I suppose he'd, he or she uh, or, or they would, would look like us, I guess. I, I of course, don't, I don't imagine God um, as a human being. I think human beings are God in some sense but they're God in a collective sense. In other words, there's not one human being who's God. They're, we're all God together. God is this collective being or mind that expresses itself, not, and not just through human beings, but through all sentient creatures and perhaps the physical universe itself. So I, I tend to think of God in very pantheistic or panentheistic terms. I don't certainly do not think of God in as a single individual, much less a single gender. I think that's caused tremendous suffering. And I, I wish we could get away from that too. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, in a, another audio program, you talk about the two-dimensional and three-dimensional 
Can you explain about that to us? So one of the things I do in Mutants and Mystics and Authors of the Impossible is I talk about how modern often use scientific metaphors or scientific thought experiments to talk about transcendence. Uh, you know, five, six hundred years ago, if someone were to have an out-of-body experience, they would, of course, go to heaven or a hell or perhaps purgatory, and they would see saints or demons or whatever the case might be. Today, when people have out-of-body experiences, of course, sometimes they do too, but often they have experiences with physics and cosmology, so they'll pop another dimension or they'll see a galaxy or they'll become one with the evolution impulse of the cosmos. They'll, they'll, they'll experience their out-of-body event in essential scientific uh, metaphors. And um, one of the main sources of this way of thinking is a book called Flatland, which a man named Abbott published in the 1870s. Basically what he does is he imagines a, a world in two dimensions. So, so imagine a, a civilization that existed on your desktop uh, and that everybody in it could only move in two dimensions. They couldn't see or think outside those two dimensions. And then imagine what it would be like for a third three-dimensional being, in other words, us, that how would we interact with that two-dimensional world? Well, for one thing, we'd be omniscient. We'd be able to see everything all at once. And we'd also be able to intervene in ways that the people in Flatland would find utterly mysterious and confusing. So, you know, we could stick our finger through their world and it, our finger would just appear as a small circle, then a larger circle, and then disappear when we pulled it away. And so what Abbott, I think, what, what other people then suggested following Abbott was that if you just think of our world in three dimensions, how would we experience a, a being of four or five dimensions that was interacting with ours? And of course, it would be very similar to how the how, how would interact with a, with a three-dimensional being. And so these are just thought experiments. They're ways of, of trying to understand how limited our imaginations are and how a paranormal experience or out-of-body experience might look confusing and irrational to our three-dimensional mindsets, but actually might be perfectly sensible if we could think in four or five or six dimensions. If you could wrap up everything you've read and you've learned and you've written about into one particular piece, what would it be? That human beings are, are far stranger than we, we think we are. Extreme religious experiences are, are true and, and false at the same time. Do you have any projects or books coming out in the coming coming year? No, I, I, we just finished The Supernatural, so that's by far the most recent one. I'm just trying to keep up with that one at the moment. All right, Jeffrey, you have a meeting to go to. And right. just want to say thank you very much for being on the show, Jeffrey. And um, Yeah, well, thank, thank you, Aaron. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.